you know, we didn't have bottled water. It wasn't part of our culture. It's there, so it's becoming part of our culture. So in the process of constructing culture, I think that's where design plays a massive role. And we use the word design culture in our thing. What does that mean? That means how through design, through the form of an object, uh, through what the object communicates, you also set up new implicit rules in society. Uh, that means that you design things in a way that those rules are implicit and they get carried through the design culture. And, and that's how I understood. And I think architecture is like that. And in architecture, I think a more useful way, perhaps, and it just comes to mind, you know, there's a geographer, Neil Brenner, who sort of first bought this up for cities and one can apply it, you know. You know, as architects, we look at the context. We use the word context a lot. And sure. in, you know, they were sort of describing it as people, your constituency, the users, all of that. And the context, the way we define it as architects is climate, availability of material, location, geography. You can go a little further in the construction of that context by including culture. It's a little yeah. more subjective. How do you yeah. understand it? You could excavate deeper in constructing the context and you talk about the histories of the site, what exactly existed there before and you know and those some of which are intangible right but i think i think robust design and affordance and all the questions that we are discussing comes when you nestle that context as we understand it as designers or as people looking at financial mechanisms etc if you nestle the context in its context so then you ask the question what is the context of the context and I think this is what I understood Uday alluding to. Then you have socio-political forces, you have the temporal scale, because there is a broader and almost a global context that is also influencing what right. we are doing. We often, as designers, isolate the context that we define as a context we are comfortable with. And I think good design is design that also has the ambition of connecting to the context of the context. And um, So in a sense, design is always particular. It, it always sits somewhere. I think that's a choice. You can make it very particular or you can connect it and intersect it with forces that are revolving all around us. I think, And I think that's what Praveen was also referring to in terms of some of the ideas he put forth. It's interesting that you actually started the conversation by saying that this is this the matter of cities, right? Yeah. And, and think about that word a little bit. Food, sewage, waste, everything that we are talking exactly. about is matter. And this is matter being produced, circulated, transformed at a scale where we need to think about efficiencies, equity, fairness, yeah. all kinds of things simply because people are there producing matters, consuming them, transforming them in such large quantities. And I think at some point of time, this changes qualitatively the way in which these things work, right? It's not simply a question of saying that from one kilogram, we have gone to 100 kilograms. That scale at some point of time actually tips the question qualitatively into something very different. And that very different question is that when people come together in large numbers, learn from each other, mix all kinds of diversities, new possibilities emerge from within that. And that's what is exciting about cities and that's what is actually... So what do you have in mind work. when you say new possibilities? Say, for example, if you think about agricultural production, mm -hmm. people produce food grains in one large expanded area. But they have to bring it all into the city to be able to trade it yeah. with someone else. And when they bring it in, there are different kinds of grains that come together they get mixed up, they get exchanged, yeah. they get transported 
to other places. And in the process itself, there is a lot of transformation that's happening in that mixing that happens in one place. And in this sense, actually, the one of the things that, that, that struck me when I began to think about cities is Jane Jacobs' work, where she actually says that there's this strange misunderstanding across the world that villages come before cities. It's actually the other way around, because the city makes it possible for agriculture to happen. The city makes it possible for new production to happen. The city makes it possible for new ideas to emerge. So you're saying villages acquire some kind of identity as a result of the cities? Yes. Right. In the sense that if you think about it through material and matter, look at agriculture. Agriculture... It's kind of produced for the cities. Yes, and also it happens through the city, right? I mean, you can't have modern agriculture without a tractor. A tractor is not made on the farm. The tractor is made in the city. What is a global city? How would Corbusier conceptualize something like this? So modernist cities, sort of the current version of the modernist claim is what is known as sustainable cities. It's like, it's not a Kannada idea, my friend. Yeah. The planet's going down the tube. We'd better get our shit together. Yeah. Right? That's a modernist claim. It's not based on capital or the people want to lace it on. It's a sort of a new version of a modernist claim. We are all on this one planet. Yeah. And unless we clean up our buildings and our cars, we are all going to go down together. Right. That's a modernist idea. Right. Now, whether capital wants to finance it or not, nowadays they're being made to finance it by putting a gun on your head. What was the previous iteration? What were, what happened in the context of Chandigarh? In the context of Chandigarh, the idea was producing citizens. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you produce a modern citizen? This was Nehruji's conception. And which can be interestingly passed through a Gandhian worldview. And one can say Gandhi's conception of a citizen, you know, through Tolstoy, Thoreau and all these people, was already a darshan. You know, it was a darshan. He saw a certain view and Nehruji saw a certain view through it. And, uh, but that was very highly rooted in villages and highly local and so on, right? Yes, so informed that's just by Ruskin and Tolstoy and Thoreau, mm. right? So, so how did uh, Ruskin and Tolstoy know about the Indian village? Sure. But Gandhiji saw them see it because he saw it through darshan. One can argue that of a certain kind. And so one can say in that sense that darshan is already... So know, how global. local was Chandigarh then as, as conceived in conception? Completely local. It was an Indian post-colonial conditions product. No, there is no city like this in the West. Mm-hmm. America doesn't have a city like this. Europe doesn't have a city like this. And what aspects of it? As a, as a city intended to produce a modernist citizen in the sort of a Nehruvian Gandhian mold. That's what Kabuzia tried to do. And how does a city produce a modern citizen? So that's the billion dollar question, <laughs> correct? <laughs> so the way Kabuzia did it was that he produced a commercial center to the city and then he produced a government complex mm-hmm. which was not made in the Lutyens model of a space for parades mm-hmm. which is one way to produce citizenship mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. here is the parade here are the guns and here is the flag and therefore I belong to this nation sure but there's another way to produce citizenship which is a much more complicated way which requires participation agency and inaction <laughs> as citizenship beyond voting. So he tried to produce a space that suggested that notion of citizenship. Interesting. Chandan, you have something on this? Yeah. The, the, in the Indian cities, so somehow, you know, the discussions of a city in social science presume the European experience of how cities came to be formed, which, as, which you know, through the, after the Industrial Revolution, cities became their own thing and they, the relationship with the hinterland was essentially non-existent. But Indian cities have grown 
without severing itself from the hinterland so closely. So if, if we look at the settlement patterns of, you know, communities, their links with their villages are continually nourished. Festival times are when, when they go, they get the village gods to come to the city. You know, and then during marriage feasts, it's either held in the village or they are asked to come to the city. So there's a way in which our, even our big metropolises haven't become insular. So there's a way in which, the, you know, in one sense, it's the constellation of villages because cities have enveloped to, have grown to envelop villages. In another sense, the migrants have come into the city because of modern means of communication and transport are able to easily maintain ties with where they come from. Memories are still strong. So this allows for a different, you know, quality of city life. Of course, you have modern professionals who have just come to the city to make a living, who may have a different world, social world there. And then you have these migrants with active ties. So it's a, it's a... But that's exactly the description of the United States of America. America likes to think mm-hmm. that's exactly that country. Mm-hmm. Where everybody can enjoy the, the prosperity and yet retain their identities of the various places they came from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, it's uh, you know... So let's go back to the question we posed a while ago. Mm-hmm. You have something to say and so, we'll, so we'll jump we forward. Recognize that Indian cities have you know, are enmeshed within a world of uh, financial transactions that are mm-hmm. global. We can't subscribe to a generic world city model uh, for yeah, various reasons, are, even for architectural are. reasons that you're... Yeah, no, no, we shouldn't, uh, we but should. we are. <laughs> <laughs> Are the water networks tying the city up in a certain kind of way? Yeah, very much. So I think the water networks are, I mean, thinking again with the powers of history, are emergent out of historical processes and ongoing relationships mm-hmm. between engineers and chaviwalas and citizens and municipal councillors. But they're also emerging out of relationships between the city and its water catchment dams in Shahpur district in Thane. Another place. Another place, right? So this, the, the place, the city of Mumbai, emerges through relationships not only within it, but also between it and its periphery or areas which are peripheralized through the provisioning of water. So so here water is very much exchanged to constitute not only cities and the city limits. Um, the city of Mumbai emerged as a municipal body to manage water distribution in the 1860s. Oh, that's so. And so, so you very much see the unit of the city, the political unit of the city emerging around the management and exchange of water. And you see that continuing So that today. kind of organization was necessary for that kind of a network to take root. Exactly, almost, right? exactly. And then the city is then, and then the, but the citizens in the city are also constituted through that exchange of water across these different geographies, but also across these different polities. Clearly, there was some conception of the idea of a world, like some idea Absolutely. Of, of a whole. Now, it may have been inaccurate and small mm-hmm. and this and that, mm-hmm. but at least the notion of the whole existed. Absolutely, and more than just... How the... back does that go? You see, I've always been wondering, mm. when children acquire a conception of the globe. Yeah, mm. great you see, um, I have a three-year-old grandson, and uh, now uh, I believe that he has now figured out there are different cities in the world. I know that six months ago he did not know it. Now he's acquainted with four cities in the world. So when I next see him, I'm going to try to tell him that they're all on the globe. So what is the parallel analogical process yeah. that as human race we went through? Clearly there were civilizational exchanges and maybe somebody was turning up from China in the Middle East or whatever, stuff like that may have been happening. Yeah, I mean, I think the big there are sort of two big shifts that are worth pointing to. I mean, people often point to, for instance, the so-called discovery of the Americas as being this foundational shift, partly because the so-called tripartite Earth, right, Asia, Europe and Africa, because of 
long histories of cultural trade, economic exchange, um, that sense that this is what the world is mm. exists as well described from antiquity onward. Uh, people understand distances because of the time time of travel. There are a sort of textual accounts of navigation between these different places. So it's also possible that the sort of flat earth idea comes from the fact that we have the descriptions. The thought of this is one whole. Right, yeah. right. That the that these three continents are one whole. So what but happens... But the discovery of America's Aisha is like 500 years Absolutely, ago. Absolutely, 1492. Yeah. So what shifts there, and I think it's important to understand this, and this part of the flat earth narrative too, is people often joke, oh, you know, Columbus thought he could just like sail west and reach China. And so he must have thought, you know, that was flat. And that's a misconception about how do you open out a three-dimensional object onto a two-dimensional plane, right? Hmm. I mean, adults, children still have trouble just understanding what that means as a kind of mental operation. Yeah. Um, but what happens when Columbus does reach the Americas and people do realize that this is another continent, you have a conceptual problem, right? You have a vision in your head of this tripartite world. And then the question is, visually on a map, where do you put that new continent? Yeah. And what is the relationship of that new continent to these other continents, right? And if you want to imagine that you're opening out a three-dimensional object onto this two-dimensional plane, kind of where do you open the frame to put it? Yeah. Right. So the question of so projections are well known from late antiquity. Uh, as I said, Ptolemy's geography actually gives us examples of projecting out, you know, the globe onto a two-dimensional plane to make a map. And does Mercator's projection come along with or alongside the discovery of America? Did it have to do a hundred years later? Yeah. So and there are. It's important to say that there are lots of trial projections of various kinds in that hundred-year period, including my favorite is heart-shaped projections of the world, because people <laughs> thought symbolically the heart was the center, right? Yeah. And uh, the center, Earth was the center of the That's universe. That's more an artistic and, rendering. Um, I mean, I'd say it's more than artistic. It's also a spiritual vision of the place of the Earth in the cosmos. A lot of maps are cosmological spiritual maps that they have their function is not just to show people where to go. It's often to orient them in a larger space. And initially, star charts too are, you know, they're about seeing where you are in the cosmos. I mean, yeah. you're not going to actually go there. Eventually, you place yourself somewhere on any map you draw. Right. So it's the, mo- the notion that maps are to get someplace is an extremely modern notion. I mean, really oh. of only the past three, maybe 400 years. What is an urban setting? It has uh, features like the personal density. You can go back to the Durkheim's notion of the urban uh, phenomenon. People living close together. It has, uh, you know, street lights and electricity and water and all of that. Not always happening. I mean, there are examples at the edges of these metropolitan areas where you have what the Indonesian called the Sakota, which is actually right. understandable in our Indian uh, right. uh, language. It's a mix of both country and city, kind of a transitional phase. So a lot of the peripheral urbanization is taking place in that, that sense. And where do you stand on this? Is it the cause or, or the result of it? Now, maybe there's no one answer. What is your instinct in this? Well, the instinct, of course, is that the urbanization, the spread, the, what's happening is urbanization is taking place as urban sprawl, which is unfortunate because it's bringing all of the negative externalities of it's also of, localizing it. It's all coming to it, one place. Yes, it causes more uh, pollution, more... No, that's fine. I think my question to you is on this cause-result business of whether urbanization causes development or urbanization is the result of development. Well, Maybe it, maybe this dichotomy itself is a false one. It, it is probably, yeah, that way. Um, 
the, there's still sort of a debate, and, the, and I think World Bank claims is a development that leads what to is urbanization. Your instinct? My instinct is more or less that direction, I think, is that it's a development that causes urbanization, because largely development meaning basically the migration, transport of rural population to urban areas and coming for jobs and economic opportunities, and that leads to the growth of the cities. Right. But even in rural development, I think this is one of your questions, that the, when the rural areas grow, they become, if that shows the success, economic success at the rural level, the rural areas grow and become uh, reclassified as urban areas. Yeah. So there's a birth of cities that's yeah. happening every decennial census, and these births are really the old rural settlements becoming prosperous and larger. See, what we can say is that work is certainly not particular to our age. People have been working. <laughs> so there is no life without work. That's why I say You agree with that, Vasavi? Yeah, very much. But you can say that different forms of work have given rise to this distinction that we make between work and labor. Now, if you think, I was thinking of my own language, Bengali. Right. Kajkora are strong. So is it the same? It's not same. To labor and to work, they have, but they are closely related. But the particular form that work takes has deep relevance to the concept of the notion of labor. And mm. when you say you labor, I think, and you were right in driving me to that point so that I can clarify myself that for me, the idea of work is enormously influenced by the idea of labor. And I think, therefore, the more interesting question would be that at what point all notions of work are consumed under the notion of labor. Yes. Mm. And we yes. say labor of memory. Mm. Or could it be the opposite also, that all forms of labor get consumed under the label of work? Absolutely. Mm. As you think about this question, Vasavi, is like, is it is it a good idea to conceive of a society where there's enough surplus and there's no need to work? And, and you know, we'll introduce the notion of leisure somewhere along the way as we go along in this discussion. But you know what I mean. Mm. So a society or a sub-society or a subculture. Are you uh, saying work is, can be considered redundant, redundant at some time? Yeah. 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 Is no, there a problem with that? Is, are there going yeah. to be implications after a few iterations that, that, that might... Yeah. Be worrisome? Yes, definitely. Mostly because work is so central to life, as we talked about. Not only because of the multiple, not so much functions as much as it really defines us as human beings and the kinds of societies we've evolved. But is there something mm. fundamental about that or it's really conventional? It's just, it's no, just that we've happened to... I think it is to... fundamental, both to our evolution and to what we are. Uh, so I would say uh, it's quite far-fetched to think of even a possibility of a society where there is no need to work. So sometimes, you know, I might be singing a particular rag or playing a particular rag and then I, I have this moment of inspiration. And very often that happens when you're on your own, not necessarily on the stage. So because... Uh, when when you're actually performing uh, in the presence of an audience, there are very many other pressures that act upon you. So so perhaps you don't tend to take so many risks. Right. Okay. Of course, it depends again on who the musician is. 
Sure. But let's say you're working on your own in your home, you know, and and then you have this bright spark at some point, and then you continue working on it, working on it, and then you present it on stage, you test it out over a series of concerts, let's say, and then suddenly everybody thinks, okay, this is an interesting, and it almost becomes a convention in successive generations, and over a period. the disciples disciples disciple suddenly decides okay okay this is the rule actually right in our style so this is this is not one of those cases where you breaking the norm for the sake of breaking the norm it's kind of starts off as a creative impulse or something to the effect so there's something organic about it absolutely uh, although uh, there's enough evidence to suggest that people also do things for novelty yeah sure or to so, please a certain kind of patron or whatever you know and so going back to the question you posed a little while ago anish when you say that there are no norms for how you deviate so if if one were to think of that in a somewhat rigorous sense how how does one articulate something like that and surely it's going to be in a very specific context and so on but what's the nature of those norms for deviation so there aren't norms for deviating but there is a convention okay. that people have deviated in the past right so there are instances and examples of people having deviated yes and that convention suggests that if you want this tradition to be alive and kicking then that convention should continue mm. of deviating how to deviate nobody lays down oh, the rules sure. <laughs> there are no norms for that because finally you are a creative person at best your guru can provide you certain keys okay sure. maybe you can look at it a little differently sure. so that mentoring takes place and the guru may not have done it himself or herself but he could suggest it you know maybe you should take the risk and do this And how do how do mathematicians such as you measure connectedness? Is there a way of saying? I mean, is this in terms of number of nodes, number of connections, number of how does one go about? There are certain things you can really measure easily about a network, but there are also things that are hard to understand. For instance, if you have a very large network like uh, the World Wide Web, we do not really know what its structure is. If you look, you mean the structure of the entire network? Of the entire network, it's too big. Uh, we can measure things about it, but we don't have a, a full understanding of how uh, the network is really formed uh, and what the architecture is. Uh, there are certain networks you, for you which you mean the topology of it. Yes. Or? So if you, you know, in in my country, somebody uh, who controls the train traffic can look at a big screen and still uh, get a view of what the entire network looks like and what is happening on the network. Right. But if you have a big network like the World Wide Web, you or can't have a map of it. You can't map. You it can't out. map it. It would even be very difficult to 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 visualize it if if you if you want to. And for instance, in a network of friendships. Uh, not everything is always disclosed so you may not be able to have access to all the information about the network even if you would want to banks who trade commodities they will not let other people know exactly with who they are trading what uh, you know once a year they have to produce a certain number of figures but they they will not disclose everything so it is a challenge sometimes to understand what the network really looks like and what it is doing does uh, does that make sense to you ravi what does something like internet look like of course there's a mathematician a more topological kind of struggle of how do you exactly map it and what 
configuration you think of it what is connectedness for you and how does one think of media in this context is media just something that flows on a network so is network the substrate on which media flows or is there something more substrate like to the whole notion of media itself so uh, i actually think we've always been connected modern life mm-hmm. has always existed as a bundle of connections mm-hmm. uh, the old historical cycles of agriculture circulation of commodities have always built uh, networks through which people come together they build uh, memories of trading cultures of trading norms of trading right so these have always existed libraries are based on classification systems which are very strongly network linked because books circulate our thinking is all the time overlapping it is not jumbled up but it's overlapping where a speech has to be ordered so then you have this whole notion of types or tokens of these kind of languages with the verb is at the end this kind of language with the verb in the front this kind of languages with the verb in the middle these are all actually tokens of that idea that okay you need to have a subject and a predicate and the predicate needs to have a verb and an object that's so helpful that meant is the notion of similarity different from the notion of difference for you or are they the two sides of the same coin in fact if you want to say that a is similar to b a cannot be totally similar to b it'll have to be different from b also so these two notions are related and interrelated like you cannot define difference without similarity you cannot define similarity without reference to difference would you think of this in the same terms like i mean let's go to the world of diseases for example right i mean there is we're all similar in many 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 ways but we are different in very specific ways see that is the beauty of life so there is a commonality and then there is a uniqueness of each individual uh, like if there is a virus going around in this room maybe i am susceptible but you guys are not that is because of uh, our genetic difference and sometimes it may be something other than genetic how different are we is that realm specific is that yes, depends yes. on that specific virus no no how different we are is a very so, defined question that can be quantitated so i can tell how many nucleotides we have 3.2 billion nucleotides how many are different between you and me so one so can so that can be quantitated very precisely consequence of that difference is not clear because we know very little how uh, the information uh, works in the in the dna but let's but say the relatedness for... and all uh, can be very accurately determined you see when spinoza says that the suicide and and the one the killer and the killed are not the same i don't think he was challenging the notion of fragmented subject i don't think that was his idea sure he was simply pointing out to the singularity unique singularity of the act of suicide which cannot be used as a master narrative to explain the person who committed suicide get my point yes so that is it the other is when jevananda's protagonist goes out and without any apparent rhyme or reason actually hangs himself it's not that he is beyond any any causal explanation just that the kind of causal calculus 
we use to explain actions, agency, might not work there. It's a different kind of internal evacuation. Of course, there is reason. Otherwise, you'd be considered mad. And Das is never saying he's a madman. You see, they, these are the sort of things. And see, Heidegger's notion is very interesting. And, I'm, uh, and I think you sort of hit on the right point. Because what Heidegger was saying here, and we can relate it to this uniqueness which gives suicide its kind of uh, fascination or lure, as you say, what he's saying that, you know, we all live in the midst of death. Every death, of course, I mean, it's commonplace to see my, my, my... Closest companion's death with whom I shared the toaster, for instance, shared the plate, toothpaste, everything. Once he or she dies, I I sort of realize a part of my going down as well, which I didn't know. And I did and I always want to hide from that death. But however much I might want to hide from that death, I can only explain that death in the language of my death. Mm. Then the point Heidegger is making that Every death at one level is radically unique, radically same. I die like everyone dies, but each death is like. But the face of a dead man is like the face of any dead man. Get my (laughs) point? Which is, again, common eye. So the common eye and the radical eye are coming together. And that creates that unique phenomenology of death, which can be related to suicide. So so you're suggesting that it's almost like a transcendental self and death is a universal... Universal, but more than that, death is an aporia because it is bringing together that radical singularity Uh and the radical commonness at one level Mm -hmm. which cannot meet. And therefore, at one point he says, therefore, the face of a dead man will ever always remain unknown to me because of this Uh initial.